We welcome you to the Tabernacle Podcast, brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit our website, tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. You can find other sermons like this one on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. It is our prayer that God has used this message to be an encouragement to your heart. Take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 2, would you? Matthew chapter 2 and verse number 11. The scripture says in Matthew 2, 11, And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Father, speak to our hearts this morning. I pray that you'd remove from our minds all distractions. Help us, Lord Jesus, to get our eyes on you quickly and to see you as the solution to our difficulty, to our problem, and to our greatest problem of all, our sin problem. Lord, if there's someone here that is not saved, I pray that on this last Sunday of 2023, they would place their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ alone to save their soul. And I pray that today they would pass from death to life and darkness to light. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd help every Christian exactly where they're at, meet their need, meet them right now and right here. We pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm so thankful for what God is doing here at Tabernacle and for the way that he's working in all of this. And I'm thankful for the new project. When we came, we turned on uh, on to 29th and a half Avenue or whatever it is that's right in front of the church. I mean, nobody in the whole world had, lives on 29th and a half Avenue except Tabernacle Baptist Church. But we turned and we drove past the old grocery store and uh, somebody said, that's where the new school is and where the new church is. And I said, oh, that's exciting. I can't wait to find out. And I was talking with Brother Odom in the uh, foyer in the lobby and, and uh, just asking him questions about that and how exciting that is. I'm, I'm so thankful for what God is doing and for what God has done here. And I want to say today that the important thing that needs to be kept in mind by every Christian in this place is the answer to this question. Is Jesus in the house? Is Jesus in the house? when all the transition begins and, and, uh, and things begin to move and building begins and, and walls are put up and, and uh, chapels are, are put in place and classrooms are put in place and, and all the brick and mortar and all the sticks and drywall and all of that is put in place and all the paint is put up and all the new chairs and carpeting and the smell of new is there. What needs to be asked on a regular basis by the people of Tabernacle Baptist Church is this question, is Jesus in the house? Is Jesus in the house? You know, in the Old Testament, the children of Israel kind of got their eyes off of all of that. In the book of 2 Chronicles or Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35, when Moses dedicated the tabernacle, the Bible says that, that, that it took great, great offering and great sacrifice for the people to give. In fact, in Exodus chapter 38 and 39, they gave and they gave of their own resources and they gave of their own gold and silver. And, and those with a willing heart, both men and women came and brought to give. And my, what a great sacrifice and offering that was. In fact, the Bible says that they gave so much that those that were building said to Moses, it's too much. It's too much. Now, I wonder if there's been anybody here that's ever been in an offering where they had to stop the giving halfway back. 
Anybody here? You say, oh, no, we're Baptist. Huh? And if we don't get enough the first time we pass the place, the, the second time, uh, I don't know. Uh, I've been in one offering in my life where more than enough came in and we said it's enough, but, but only one. But in this passage of Scripture in Exodus, they came with their gifts and their giving. And do you know what that is a sign of? That's a sign of revival. Giving is a sign of revival. When God's people have surrendered their heart, it affects their pocketbook. And when God's people say, we're going to honor you with our giving, by the way, uh, since it's the last Sunday of the year and since we're about to start a new year, I want to say, if you'll give your heart to the Lord, it won't be any problem when it comes to giving from your own bank account. Uh, someone said the most sensitive nerve in a man's body runs from his heart to his pocketbook. And I think that's true. But when God's people are, are somehow stymied in their giving, when God's people somehow don't want to give and don't want to honor the Lord with their giving, something's wrong. There's something wrong spiritually. There's something not right. Uh, revival produces giving. And the scripture tells us this in the book of Malachi. He says, uh, you have robbed me. And they say, wherein have we robbed thee? And God said, in tithes and offerings. And he said, bring me all the tithes into the storehouse and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open unto you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there will not be room enough in to receive it. And so the truth of the matter is, is when God's people have a heart that's right, they sing freely, they give freely, they go freely, they work freely. And that's why in Exodus chapter 38 and 39, the offering had to be stopped because revival was taking place. But when revival's not taking place, I begin to think that all that I have is mine. That I'm the source of all of the good in my life. That I'm the source of everything. And so in Exodus chapter 40 then, they got the tabernacle erected and they put everything up. And the scripture says that Moses came to dedicate it. And it says a cloud covered the tent of the congregation. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the Lord or the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Oh, what a wonderful thing that must have been to see. What an awesome moment that must have been when the, uh, when the priest and the Levites and all the singers got ready to sing and they couldn't because God took their breath away. Do you know later when Solomon built the temple, David gave, the Lord said, David, you've been a man of war, and so I'm not going to let you build the temple, but you can prepare, and so prepare David did. And if there was ever an example of preparing for the next generation, David is that example in the end of his life. And he gave, and he gave, and he prepared, and so Solomon laid out the plans, and Solomon built. Why, what a builder Solomon was. And he built the temple according to the plans that were laid out, and then he dedicated it in the Second Chronicles chapter 5 and verse number 12 through 14 the scripture says that the Levites which were the singers all of them of Asaph of Heman of Jeduthun with their sons and their brethren being arrayed in white linen having cymbals and psalteries and hearts harps stood at the east end of the altar and with them an hundred and twenty princes or priests sounding with trumpets it came even to pass as the trumpeters and the singers were at, were praising and were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord and when they lifted up their voice with the trumpet and symbols and instruments of music and praise the Lord saying for he is good his mercy endureth forever that then the house was filled with the cloud even the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God what a, what a sight that must have been 
when their breath was taken away and they had to put their trumpets down, when emotions so welled up within them because of the presence of God. You see, Stephen said this, we'll note in a moment, that, that God is the one that fills heaven and earth. He doesn't need a house. But when God's people make room for him and God's people make him the centerpiece and when God's people make him the center focus, oh, the Lord likes that. In fact, the Bible says he inhabits the praises of his people. And so when God's people begin to make him number one and to be seen and to be primary and to be preeminent, all of a sudden God fills the house. That's what happened in 2 Chronicles chapter number five. That's what happened in Exodus chapter number 40. But do you know, when you move through the history of Israel, you find that they disobeyed God. They allowed idolatry to move in. They allowed God and they crowded God out with their lives and their schedules and their traditions. And then idolatry moved in. You know what came next? Judgment. And the house of the Lord was destroyed. And then Hezekiah rebuilt the tabernacle. And Haggai, the prophet, said in Haggai 2, verses 3 through 9, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? So this was when the old men wept and the young men shouted. This is when they saw the temple in Hezekiah's day and they said it's not as good as it was in Solomon's day. But Haggai said, wait a second, you need to not focus on the house or the temple or the sticks and stones or the bricks and mortar. You need to focus on the God of the house. Haggai chapter 2 and verse number 4, he says in verse number 4, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and, 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 and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. Fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of the latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, what's he saying? He's saying, hey, it may not look like it did in Solomon's day, and it may not look like it did before judgment came, but hey, someday I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I'm going to fill this house with the glory of myself. Jesus is going to fill that temple one day again, and he should be the focus in the first place doesn't matter about the sticks and the stones and the bricks and the mortar. That's not what the focus should be. The focus should be on the greatness and the goodness and the faithfulness and the power and the mercy and redemption of our Savior. In Matthew chapter 24, the Pharisees in Jesus' day got it all confused. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. You know what Jesus was talking about? He, how this, this temple would be destroyed in his day. That temple would be destroyed because of judgment and Titus would come and leave not one stone upon another. He was talking about judgment that would come. And do you know what the Pharisees did? The Pharisees took it all wrong. What Jesus said in John 2, 19, Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He wasn't talking about the physical temple there. He was talking about his body. 
And boy, that made them angry. Do you know why? They had stopped loving the God of the temple and they had turned their love to the temple itself. And boy, they got it all confused. In Acts 6, 14, they said to Stephen, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place. That's not what he said at all. And shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. That's not what he said at all. In Acts 7, 48 through 50, Stephen came and Stephen said, Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? And do you know what they did to Jesus? Because he, they misinterpreted his words and took them out of context. And what they did to Stephen because of Jesus' words and them misinterpreting his words, they killed them both. Why? They got their eyes off of Jesus, off of God, off of the God of the temple and onto their temple and onto their traditions. And I want to say our focus has to be upon the Bible and upon the God of the Bible. And when that's the case, people will ask the question and answer it rightly. Is Jesus in the house? Now I want to ask the question, is Jesus in the house this morning? I want you to ask the question, is Jesus in my heart? Is Jesus in, in my home? Is Jesus in this house right here? That should be the number one focus. And it shouldn't be just the pastor concerned about it. It should be every member concerned about it. Boy, before you come to church about a half hour before, you ought to be in the mindset of prayer that says, Lord Jesus, meet with us today. All is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. Lord Jesus, show yourself strong. Speak to us through your word. Apply your truth directly to my heart and meet my need and meet the needs of those that come. And anybody that's lost, help them to know when they walk in the building, this is a place where the spirit of God is. And this is the place where truth is taught. And this is the place where I can find answers to my deepest soul's needs. This is the place where God is. That's, that needs to be asked. Is Jesus in the house? I want to show you what happens when Jesus is in the house. First of all, Matthew 2 and verse 11, it says, And when they, that is the wise men, were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now here the wise men come. Now I'm not trying to be, uh, to, to cause controversy today. Anybody that knows me knows I'm a very non-confrontational person. But uh, I'm not trying to cause controversy this morning, but I want to say, I don't believe these wise men came two years later. I believe that they came at the time of the nativity, somewhere within the 40 days they were there. Uh, someone says, well, they came into the house. Right. Well, I believe that the manger and the, the, uh, the stable could very possibly have be, have, it could very possibly have been under the house. When I was in Italy a few years ago, up in the place where the Waldensians are, the, the Waldensians trained their preachers in a building that was just a small building about as big as some office here. And, and underneath the building, do you know what there were? Animals. Do you know why they were there? To heat the upper part of that building. And the place where the animals were, the ceiling was shorter. The animals would be there and the heat from the animals would come up. I believe it's very likely that's where they came. I believe that when they say, well, some people say, well, it was a young child that, that Jesus uh, was described as. Well, that could be including an infant and a baby. The word, word for young child isn't just unique and, and, and only focused on that. And so these, uh, some people say, well, it was a long journey. Uh, well, do you know how long of a trip it is to walk from 
Tehran to Jerusalem, 11 days. Do you know how long it takes to walk from Baghdad to Jerusalem? 19 days. So not very long. And here you have the wise men coming. Somebody says, well, you know, Herod killed all those two years old and younger. Well, I think he was just a madman. He was covering all of his bases. But that being set aside, I would not cross swords with anyone over that matter. I just want to say when they came into the house, you know what they did? When they saw Jesus, they bowed down and worshiped. Listen to me. When Jesus is in the house, number one, there is humble worship. When Jesus is in the house, there is humble worship. These wise men could have come from the area of Tehran or Persia. They could have come from Baghdad or, or even from Babylon. Uh, they could have come from there. Uh, they, they could have come from further east. They, there could have been a, a mixture of kings. But the Bible says when they came, these were wise men. These were royals. These were men uh, that had connection to kings. And they came to meet the king. And do you know when they came? Their crown didn't matter. Their authority or pedigree or resume didn't matter. When they came, ladies and gentlemen, the only thing that mattered was that they were in the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You think about that. What an amazing thought that these wise men came and they journeyed. They'd been studying likely the prophecies that were given to Daniel and that had been passed down carefully for the last eight generations or so. And they'd been studying these prophecies and all of a sudden they saw the star. Some historians believe it was a supernova, a massive star. And you know what's astounding to me, Brother Hickman, is that those who were seeking the star saw it, but those who were not seeking the star didn't see it lived under the same sky, but didn't see it. And you know, those that are seeking the Lord will see him and they will find him. Those that are not seeking the Lord, that he could be right in front of them and many times is, and they don't see him. Herod didn't see it. The, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the, the Hebrews that were knowledgeable of the scriptures, they were knowledgeable of the scriptures, but they weren't seeking the Lord. I want to say that it's important to have knowledge of the scriptures, but it's important as you have knowledge of the scriptures to know why, so that you can seek the Lord. And the scripture tells us that when these wise men came and they came to Bethlehem, they came where the young child was and they fell down on their face. Let me tell you, there's not room for Jesus in the, in the room and your ego. There's not room for Jesus in your pride. There's not room for Jesus in your arrogance. There's not room for Jesus in your stubborn resistance to his will. There's not room for Jesus and my pride and my ego and my haughtiness. The Bible says better it is to divide the better it is to be of the humble than to divide the spoil with the proud. The Bible says that a proud spirit is an abomination. A proud look is an abomination to the Lord. The Bible says that he dwells with the lowly. The scripture says, seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. The Bible tells us in the book of uh, Matthew 23, 12, whosoever exalted himself shall be abased. He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. You want Jesus to be in your house and in your life and in your, pre in, in, in your presence and in, in your activities and in your mission and in your goals, then there needs to be humble worship. When you humbly worship him, you recognize that he's the king and you're not. He's in control and you're not. We received some tragic news this morning from a friend of ours in Alabama. And when I got down on my knees, I said, Lord, I don't understand this. This does not make any sense to me. But Lord, I know when something like this happens, you're bigger than all of this. You're in control. 
I don't understand how this can be. And this doesn't make sense from my human, minuscule, limited perspective. But Lord, you've got a perspective and you're doing something that I cannot understand. I bow before you and I worship you. I want you to know that when Jesus is in the house, there is humble worship. Turn to your right, just a couple chapters to Matthew chapter 7. Quickly notice Matthew chapter 7, would you? Matthew chapter 7, I draw your attention to verse number 24 towards the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house. And it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now would you look this way for a moment? Ladies and gentlemen, in this passage of Scripture, the Bible tells us that Jesus likens a man who builds his house upon a rock to a man that hears the sayings of Jesus and builds his life upon those sayings. I want to say every wise man through the ages has heard God's words and built his life upon God's words. The Bible has not taken a small place or a minimal place in his life. It has taken a predominant place and a fundamental place in his life. It is number one, not third, fourth, fifth, or sixth, or even second. It is number one. Jesus said in Matthew 6 and verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. There are false teachers that abound today. You can find them at a plethora on the internet and on TV. And some of these false teachers want to make a dichotomy between Jesus himself and his words. For instance, a false teacher that is named Andy made a statement a few months ago that said, we need to remove ourselves from the 66 ancient documents and focus our attention on Jesus. Excuse me, that's a heretic. And ladies and gentlemen, when anybody tries to make a difference between the Bible and Jesus Christ, this is what you do. You reach in your back pocket and you grab your wallet and you put it in your front pocket and keep your hand on it. That's what you do. That man or woman is not to be trusted. Someone that tries to make a difference between this precious book, the Bible, and the words of this book and the centerpiece of this book, the Lord Jesus is someone that has no idea what they're talking about or they do and there's a sinister motive. I want to say, ladies and gentlemen, you cannot separate the Lord Jesus Christ from the Bible. If Jesus were a book, it would be this book. And if this book were a person, it would be Jesus Christ. That's why in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made. And in John 1:14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, even the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It was the Word that God 
used when he created this world and made it in six days. It was the word that God used in Noah's day when he destroyed this world with a worldwide flood. It is the word that God uses to keep this world together and hold the atom in place. And it will be the word that God uses someday to destroy this world with a worldwide fire and destroy the elements thereof that will burn with a fervent heat. Ladies and gentlemen, you can mock God's word if you want to. You can scoff at God's word if you please. You can make light of or you can ignore God's word. You can determine in your heart that your word is better than his word or man's word is better than his word. But this word is far and away. God said, I have exalted my word above my name, his holy, precious, wonderful name. He's exalted his word above that. And if you choose not to build your life upon every word of this book, then the Bible says you're a foolish man and your house will fall. When the rain comes and the winds blow and the floods rise, your house will not stand. But if you choose to build your life upon this book, number one, by trusting Jesus as your Savior, and number two, by building every aspect and every nook and every cranny and every measurement and every wall and every nuance and every part of the infrastructure and every part that is seen and unseen, you build your life on this precious book. God says when the rains come and the floods rise and the winds blow, your house will stand. That's what God says. I want you to know that when Jesus is in the house, listen to me, there is safety and stability. Are there any cracks in the walls of your house? I was in Texas preaching a few years ago in 2019 and we didn't have our trailer with us. Normally we have a fifth wheel trailer and the whole family travels together, but we didn't have it. We thought we'd save a few pennies. So we went down to South Texas and then we came back up into the San Antonio area. And they put us in a home of uh, someone in the church. And uh, I noticed when I walked in the door that sometimes the doors didn't shut all the way rightly. They, they were a little, little tight and it wasn't because of heavy moisture. And then I noticed that there were cracks in the walls, not just little cracks. Sometimes they were about a half inch up the wall and not just one or two cracks. There were several cracks in the walls. And then I noticed that the house wasn't net level. Now, if anybody in the world knows what it is to level a house and when a house is level or not, I do because I level my trailer every week. And anybody that knows me knows I can't stand it if my trailer's crooked and I can't stand it if it's not level. And so I level it every week and I said, honey, I don't think this is level. And we did an experiment. We took a ball and we put it at one end of the house and it rolled down the hallway without any encouragement. The house wasn't level. And I said to the pastor, I said, pastor, I'm not trying to get into anybody's business. But I said, I think that there might be some problems with that, that guy's foundation. He said, oh, yeah. He said, it's a regular problem around here. It's something to do with the clay or something to do. And it's big business to come in and, and bolster the houses and bolster their foundation. Uh, last year, just uh, a little bit more than a year ago, we were in, we were in Pisa, Italy. And we were there at St. Mark's Cathedral and there at the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And uh, it's leaning because that whole area was built up from a marshland. And so that's why over the years, the tower just began to lurch a little bit to the side. And so what they did is they shot hundreds and thousands of gallons of cement down into the foundation to bolster it so that it wouldn't lay on its side completely and so that they can preserve this monument. And you can go up in the Tower of Pisa today 
if you want to. And, uh, and when you want to, you walk around and the steps are marked by people walking because you can feel, uh, you can feel the, the, the lean as you go up and you can stand on the top. They have a bell up on the top. So it's quite, quite an amazing thing. But it's leaning. Why is it leaning? Because the foundation was faulty. If you have not trusted Christ as your only Savior, I'm not asking if you're a church member. I'm not asking if you're a good religious person. I'm not asking if you have some religious ritual that you try to keep. I'm not asking if you're a disciplined individual or a good citizen. All of those things are needful and important. But if they come to earn salvation, it's not brought you salvation. They are the result of salvation, not the, pro, not, not the reason for salvation. And so the scripture is clear. Jesus said when the, Jesus is in the house and the foundation, he can't see the foundation. Nobody here today asked to see the foundation. I'm sure if we looked down into the basement or crawled into some crawl space, we could point to some point or, or on the, 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 the building that is crucial or that leads to the foundation. But we're here benefiting from a good foundation. I want to say when Jesus is in the house, there is safety and stability. Turn one chapter, earlier, one chapter later to Matthew 8. Matthew chapter 8. Notice what the Bible says in verse 14. Jesus has just finished his Sermon on the Mount, and he's in the midst right now in Matthew chapter 8 of healing. He'll ch carry two chapters of healing to multitudes, casting out demons, healing sick, raising the dead. Notice verse 14. And when Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. His wife's mother. Do you know what that means? He had a mother-in-law. Do you know what else that means? He could not have been the first pope. Do you know what else that means? If he had been the first pope, he was the most unfortunate man that ever lived. Because he was unmarried and yet he still had a mother-in-law. <laughs> anyway, the Bible says he found his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. Verse 15. And he touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and ministered unto them. I want you to notice that when Jesus is in the house, there is healing. I don't know what your heart hurt is this morning. I don't know what pain you've had to endure in recent days or months or in this year. I'm not sure what has caused this hurt, but as I live as I live and have lived now a half a century, I've seen more and more this hurt. It's real hurt. Sometimes it comes from loss, unexpected loss. Sometimes it comes from loss that is expected. I don't care whether death comes shocking or sudden like it did this morning for some, or if death comes over a period of time when it comes even for thus, those of us who are saved. It's still, it's still so sad. Now we sorrow not as others which have no hope, but we still sorrow. And Jesus never faults you for sorrowing. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 12, when Jesus came to the tomb where Lazarus was and he saw Mary and Martha and all the people weeping, Jesus wept. Jesus is, uh, is not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. In that he hath suffered being tempted, he is able to secure them that are tempted. Jesus knows what our hurt is. And I want you to know if your hurt is caused by loss or maybe your hurt has been caused by betrayal or maybe your hurt has been caused by confusion or maybe your hurt has been just caused by hurt, 
harmful words, or maybe your hurt has been caused by, by some other me means. Maybe it's a physical hurt or a, an emotional hurt or a spiritual hurt. I want you to know that Jesus Christ alone can heal that hurt. He knows what it is to be wounded. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Jesus knows. And I want you to know that when Jesus is in the house, there is healing. He came into Jairus' house and healed his daughter. He came into other people's houses and healed their, their sickness. He came, he was in the house when, when uh, the lame man was brought to him and they couldn't get to the windows or to the doors, so they let him down through the roof in an unconventional way. When Jesus is in the house, there is healing. There is healing for your hurt that is seen or not seen. I want you to know that if you'll put Jesus in his proper place and allow Jesus in the house, that there's healing. There is humble worship. There is safety and security there is healing mark chapter 2 the bible says he entered into capernaum after some days and it was noise that he was in the house and straightway many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them no not so much as about the door and he preached the word unto them and they come unto him bringing one sick of the palsy and born of four and when they could not come nigh unto him for the press they uncovered the roof where where he was and when he had broken it up they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay when jesus saw their faith he said unto the sick of the palsy son thy sins be forgiven thee and when the pharisees didn't like that jesus said which is easier to say thy sins be forgiven thee or rise up and walk but you shall know that you know that the son of man hath power on earth to forgive sins he said take up thy bed and walk and the man walked why because when jesus is in the house there is healing i want you to notice when jesus is in the house there's something else look look at matthew chapter 9 matthew chapter 9 Notice what the Bible says in verse number 10. Matthew 9 and verse number 10. It says, And it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house. Behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick, but go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, that when Jesus is in the house, hear it, there is hope and mercy. There is hope and mercy. Aren't you glad that Jesus ate with sinners? How many of you are glad that Jesus ate with sinners? I am glad that Jesus ate with sinners. You know, they accused Jesus of being uh, able to cast out demons by the power of Satan. What a ridiculous notion. And Jesus called attention to that poor logic. They accused Jesus of being a wine-bibber and a publican and, and a drunkard. Now, I think sometimes that we get so concerned about our reputation and we ought to have a good testimony and we ought not let our good be evil spoken of and we ought to abstain from all appearance of evil. But I think sometimes we're so concerned about our precious reputation that we don't even mix with sinners and we don't even, when we, and we don't even uh, rub shoulders with sinners and that's a shame and that's not right. I hope when I die, there's the smell of secondhand smoke on my clothes because I've been trying to help a sinner. I hope when I die, there is a smell possibly of secondhand pot on my clothes because I've been trying to help somebody that's bound by that. 
I hope when I die, you can say about Jesus, uh, you can say about Dwight Smith that he was a friend to sinners. I hope when I die and I'm laying in the casket, there'll be some saved sinner that comes to my funeral and says, because of him and his friendship and his genuine love, I came to Jesus. And I hope there'll be some sinners in the congregation that will come and get saved in that day because somehow I tried to reach out to them. God help us if we're so smug and God help us if we're so pious and God help us if we're so somehow concerned about being clean that we don't want to soil our reputation. Jesus didn't care about that. His reputation was that he was a wine-bibber and a drunkard. They accused Jesus of all kinds of things. And when they came to the cross, they falsely accused him and they couldn't even get their accusations to mesh. But do you know one thing they accused him of that was absolutely true? He was a friend of sinners. He was a friend of sinners and he's a friend of you. And I want you to know from the Bible that when Jesus is in the house, there is hope and mercy. By the way, Jesus loved the Pharisees like he loved the sinners. He, he reached out to Nicodemus and Nicodemus got saved as a result of it. Paul was a Pharisee and Paul got saved. And there were likely other Pharisees that watched from a distance. Why? Because Jesus is a friend of sinners. I want you to notice that when Jesus is in the house, there is hope and mercy. The scripture tells us such in Mark chapter 2 and verse 15. It says that the people thronged him and while he yet spake there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said thy daughter is dead why troublest thou the master any further as soon as Jesus had heard the word that was spoken he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue be not afraid only believe and he suffered no man to follow him save Peter and James and John the brother of James and he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeth the tumult and them that wept and wailed greatly and when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado, and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. And when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel, and them that were with him, and entereth in where the damsel was lying. He took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha kumai, which being interpreted is, Damsel, I say unto thee, Arise. And he took the damsel by the hand, and straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of twelve years. And they were astonished with a great astonishment. What? What is, it, what is it that happens when Jesus is in the house? There's hope and mercy. Is Jesus in the house this morning? Is Jesus in your house? Is Jesus in your house? Turn one final passage, Acts chapter 8, and we're through. Acts chapter 8. Just a few books to your right, and you'll find Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. The Bible says persecution was coming and had come, and Paul, who, who was Saul at this time, was consenting unto the death of Stephen. He made havoc of the church in verse number three and scattered the, the Christians. In verse number four, therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. Watch verse eight. And there was great joy in that city. Do you see it? There was great joy in that city. I want you to notice that when Jesus is in the house, there is humble worship. When Jesus is in the house, there is safety and security. When Jesus is in the house, there is hope and mercy. When Jesus is in the house, there is healing. But when Jesus is in the house, there is joy. There is joy. 
Hey, don't be mistaken by some Christians that they're the poster child of Christianity. Some Christians look like they woke up on the dark side of the earth and lived, just crawled out under a rock and they've been sucking on sour lemons and they don't have any joy. That's not the poster child for Christianity. And shame on any of us for giving that impression. Jesus brings joy. And the scripture says there was great joy in that city. And why was there great joy? Because they allowed Jesus entrance. When Jesus is shown to the exit door, there's no joy. When Jesus is allowed entrance and given place and given prominence, there is great joy. In fact, I can tell you of countless Christians that I've met over the years who have gone through one difficulty after another, and yet they've come out the other side somehow being able to rejoice in the goodness of God. Why? Because Jesus brings great joy. He brings great joy at salvation. He brings great joy through trouble. He brings great joy through the perplexities of life. Why? Because when Jesus is in the house, there is great joy. Is Jesus in the house this morning? Is Jesus in your house? Now, Christian, you need to ask the question, is he on the inside or on the outside of your house? In Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 20, the Bible says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Do you know that often is used as a salvation passage and there is a salvation principle, but it's not a salvation passage. Do you know what the context is? The church of Laodicea. And they had so ordered their church and they had so ordered their life and they had so ordered their worship and their attitude and their choices that they had shown Jesus the door, the door, and he was on the outside knocking. God, forgive any church that has Jesus on the outside knocking. Just because you have stained glass windows doesn't mean you have a church. And just because you have padded chairs and pews doesn't mean you have a church. And just because you have a beautiful choir doesn't mean everything's right. And just because the deacon board is all in agreement and unison it doesn't mean it's a Baptist church. I mean, it doesn't mean that you got everything right. I want you to know that in order for everything to be right, Jesus has to be in the house. And the question that every Christian needs to ask on a regular basis about Tabernacle Baptist Church is, Lord, we want you to be in the house. Come, don't let anything keep you from coming and meeting with us and showing yourself strong. Is Jesus in the house this morning? I pray that when this church grows and as this church continues on into a new year, that everyone will say, Lord, we want you to have front place and center. We want you to be seen above everything else in our singing and in our preaching and in our response. Is Jesus in the house? I want to ask you a question. Is Jesus in the house? And how can he be in the house if he's not even in our heart? Sir, ma'am, is Jesus in your heart? You say, well, is that a Bible concept? Yes, it is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And in John 1:11, the Bible says he came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. To receive is to believe. To believe is to receive. Has, have you received Jesus in your heart? Do you know why God brought you here this morning if you've never been saved? So that you could accept the gift of eternal life. And by accepting the gift of eternal life, you accept the giver. Now, a gift has two parts. A giver and a receiver. Jesus paid the price in full when he died on the cross. And he's the giver. And now he's standing with his nail-pierced hand outstretched, offering you and you and you and you 
and you, the gift of eternal life, full forgiveness of sin, complete pardon, the gift that will close the doors of hell forever and open the doors of heaven forever. He's paid for this gift with his own precious blood and his death and resurrection, and now you must receive it. You see, there's two parts to a gift. There's the giver and the receiver. Jesus is the giver. Will you be the receiver today? If you've never accepted him as your savior, like many in this room have, you can accept him today and accept him in a moment and he'll save you right now. He'll come inside. He'll bring joy. He'll bring healing. He'll bring hope and mercy. He'll bring strength and stability and he'll direct you to humble worship. Thank you for listening. We pray that God has used his word to speak to you today. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit us online at tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. There, you'll find additional information about our church, opportunities to partner with us financially, as well as other resources that we hope can be a help to you. May God bless you, and thank you once again for listening.